Right now, we're in a collection called Essentials, and what we're talking about are the things that are essential to our faith. What are the things that we cannot do without? And in this season, we're focusing on the theme of prayer. What is prayer, and how does God call us to pray? And so today, we're going to continue that collection as we dive deeper into the topic of prayer. Now, the thing that I want us to focus on today, this word, as we think about prayer, is simply this— imagination. That's right. Today, we're going to talk about imaginative prayer. Now, before you think I've gone off the rails, please listen to the end of the sermon. Imaginative prayer is this beautiful practice that has been practiced throughout church history that's biblically grounded and really enhances our prayer lives. And so today, we're going to talk about what imaginative prayer is and how God uses our imaginations to speak to us and to even transform us. But before we start, I want to start with a simple exercise, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. And I just want you to follow along with me. All right, you here with me? All right, here we go. I want you to take a moment, just pause, and you can do whatever you want. You could get comfortable, you could close your eyes, or you can just keep your eyes open. Whatever is comfortable for you. I want you to bring to mind a pleasant memory from your past. It doesn't have to be your favorite memory. Don't try too hard. It might just be the first thing that pops up. But think of a pleasant or enjoyable memory from your past. Take a moment just to do that. And so as you're thinking about what this pleasant memory from your past is, I want to ask you another question, a follow-up question. How did you just do that? In other words, how did you think of that pleasant memory from your past? What did you experience as you were trying to answer that question? Now, statistically, some of you likely saw an image. Others of you probably saw a moving picture, something like a video or a movie playing in your mind. Uh, Some of you just saw it for an instance, and some of you um, saw it play out longer. Um, Others of you might have heard sounds even associated with that memory. Some of you might have smelled odors. Many of you might have started salivating if it's something that you were eating or something that you enjoyed consuming. Some of you might have felt emotionally elated that you were, um, it, as you were recreating that memory in your head. Some of you might have been emotionally saddened that you're no longer there. And while what all of you saw and how you saw it might vary all across the board, there's one thing that none of you saw. None of you saw strings of information about your pleasant memory laid out on your virtual mental monitor. In other words, none of you saw sentences describing what that pleasant memory was in your mind. None of you saw strings of data collect as you were thinking about that pleasant memory. You experienced that pleasant moment. Your brain represented that moment for you to experience, and it all took place in your mind. Um, We're going to do one more exercise before we move on. I want you to stop again, take a moment, and I want you to think of a person that you love very much. It might be a family member, it might be a friend, it might be your pastor, I don't know. Think of someone that you love very much. Just take a moment to do that. 
Now, none of you accomplish this by reciting information about this person in your mind. In fact, all of you visually represented them in your mind through your imagination. You might have visualized them smiling. You might have imagined them doing something kind. You might have recollected an interaction you had with them that was pleasant or joyful or life-giving. You might have even heard their voice or smelled their breath. Hopefully it was good. You visually represented them in your mind. When I think about Krista, there isn't a teleprompter that pops up in my head with sentences describing all of her amazing attributes. My imagination visually represents who she is to me. In other words, my relationship with Krista has not been shaped just by data or by information about who she is, but by experience, my experience with her. We find that abstract information and data fall short when it comes to relational connectedness. And that's why you can hop on a dating app and read through someone's profile and be like, on paper, this is money, this is good, he's Christian, she loves Jesus, don't smoke, all this and that. But then when you show up physically on that first date, it's the worst date that you've ever been on. Why? Because information and data alone isn't enough for relational connectedness. We need an experiential reality with that person. In other words, there's a difference between knowing things about someone and actually knowing them. Our very own Paulette is the biggest BTS fan. And I guarantee you, Paulette probably knows a whole lot of information, crazy quirks and facts about the gorgeous boys of BTS. But I guarantee you, she cannot just pull up her phone, FaceTime them, and hang out with them. She can't sit with them and chat with them and smell them and, you know, be around them. She can't experience what it is to know them. She only knows about them. You could correct me if I'm wrong. You might know them. I don't know. But it's different between her and BTS and maybe her and Gabby, who she actually does know. And so, When we look even in the Bible, when we go back to the Genesis narrative, when when Genesis speaks about Adam knowing Eve and Eve knowing Adam and both of them knowing God and God knowing them, the word for knowing used in that passage is actually this word yada. And yada doesn't translate as just head knowledge or or information or data. It, It translates into an experiential intimate knowledge. And so in our relationship with God, we know that having a relationship with Jesus is central to our lives of faith. Yet so many of us try to accomplish that exclusively by way of information. So many of us know a lot about him, but few of us experientially, intimately know him. We assume information will lead to transformation, that with the right teaching, the right podcast, the right book will be transformed. Yet right now, as disciples of Jesus, we have access to more information than ever before. Yet so many of us feel no less closer to being transformed than when we first began. Could it be that we've settled for knowing a lot about God without actually knowing him. 
I want to propose that one of the reasons why this is true is because we don't use our imaginations as disciples of Jesus. We don't use our imaginations in engaging with God. Carrie Dearborn, she writes, the power of the Christian imagination is that it not only transforms the way we perceive the world, but it can transform who we are in our innermost being. Very simply put, imagination is the mind's ability to evoke images of things that are not physically present. And so because we don't think in lines of data, because we don't think in lines of information, because we think by recreating images in our mind through our imagination, it stands to reason that God wants to meet us in that very place and in that very way. Now, we see throughout the Bible that God's interaction with humanity was more than just a data dump. There was an experiential interaction that God had with humanity throughout the pages of Scripture. And you might stop me and say, okay, Mickey, I've experienced many things with God, but I I read these stories in the Bible, and I have never experienced God the way these people in Scripture have experienced him. So it must mean that God doesn't move in that way anymore. I don't know about you, but we read about these crazy encounters people have with God and we don't see in our lives. And so we'd get discouraged and we assume that they probably don't happen anymore. But Pastor Bill Johnson wrote this very challenging quote. He said, I will not lower the standard of scripture to fit my experience. Instead, I work to raise my level of experience to the standard of the scripture. In other words, just because we're reading about these stories and we don't see it in our lives, it doesn't mean that God still doesn't move in those ways. It simply means that God wants to challenge us to increase our faith, to match our experience with the reality of Scripture and not the other way around. Now we find that in Scripture, one of the ways that God interacted with humanity, one of the ways that he spoke to people was through visions. Now, a lot of things might pop into your head when you hear the word visions, especially in church. But visions are essentially visible images of the invisible God, visible images of an invisible reality. And throughout scripture, we see so many people have these powerful, vivid images. Uh, visions with God. Peter and Paul experienced visions of Jesus throughout their ministry. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, saw a vision right before he died. John was caught up in a crazy vision and he wrote it down in the craziest book of the Bible called Revelation. And these people were forever marked, not because of the information they received, but because of an encounter, an experience with the living God. Now, I want to challenge your thinking a little bit right here. Many of us assume that all of God's interactions with humanity through visions took place as concrete, objective experiences. In other words, if we were right there in those moments in Scripture and we had our iPhone handy, we would be able to video record everything that was going on because it happened naturally. But Actually, there's nothing at all to indicate that what happened in these visions, the hearing and the seeing that people experience through these visions was always of the physical variety. 
In fact, we can't know for certain that many of these moments of God interacting with humanity through visions didn't simply happen in their mind or in other words, in their imaginations. I think we misunderstand how visions work and what visions are. Um, just quick facts. There are two types of visions that we find in the Bible. The first is what's known as an open vision. And an open vision is something that you see with your natural eyes. In other words, your eyes are open and you see reality around you change. You observe it with your natural eyes. It's like you put on an Oculus and your eyes are open to this new reality. I remember when I first tried an Oculus on for the first time, my eyes were open. It was a brand new reality. It was such a surreal experience. Experience. Now, I've personally never experienced an open vision where I was seeing a vision with my natural eyes, minus this one time I was in Indonesia and I got a fever and I started seeing little purple blobs walking around and speaking to me. But that's beside the point. I have never in my walk with God seen an open vision. But I have seen what this next kind of vision is called. It's called a vision of the mind, which is an image that God projects in your mind through your imagination. There were, in other words, it's not a vision that you're seeing with your natural eyes, but it's a vision that you see through your mind as God taps into your imagination. I remember one of the most vivid visions I ever had was when I was, um, I went to a youth retreat after I had been very far. You know, a lot of people have um, rebellious years against God. Mine just happened to be in middle school. And I remember uh, my parents forced me to go to this youth retreat. And at that youth retreat, I had this powerful encounter with God in the middle of worship as I was kneeling down. And you know those wooden crosses at those retreat centers? I saw it before me. And as I closed my eyes, God showed me this vision uh, from that cross this like river of blood. If you've seen the shining, it's like this river of blood, but it wasn't scary. It was glorious. It was reverent. This, this river of blood flowing towards me from the cross and washing over me. And as it was washing over me, I remember feeling so refreshed. I remember feeling so free, so light that all the sins, all the burdens, all the heaviness, all the discouragement, all the sorrow that I was carrying began to be washed away. Now, it wasn't, an, it wasn't an open vision in the sense that my eyes were open and I was seeing this happen and unfold before my natural eyes. It was a vision of the mind that God engaged me through my imagination. Now, I think we wrongly assume that the latter is less spiritual. And oftentimes, we write it off as not even being from God. We wrongly assume that we can't see visions because we don't experience it the first way, an open vision with our natural eyes. But I would bet that a more common form of God speaking to us is through visions of the imagination and of the mind. And I wonder how many things we imagine are actually God moments where he's trying to speak to us, but we've written them off as nothing more than mere fantasy. You see, even Jesus understood the power of imagination. This is why he so often spoke in parables. So when we see Jesus speaking about God being the vine and us being the branches, people would picture that very image. I don't know about you, but when I read that portion of scripture, I imagine this vine and these branches being grafted together 
He could have easily just say, all right, y'all, stay connected with God. End of sermon, mic drop, boom, amen. But he understood that information doesn't transform. Experience and encounter do. And he wanted his listeners to engage with God through their imagination. And one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, amazing books, had one of the most brilliant minds in history. He had such great intellect, his ability to collect information and retain that information and recite that information was uncanny. Yet he couldn't, for whatever reason, grasp the foundations of the Christian faith with intellect alone. But if you read his autobiography, it was through his relationship with his other friends who also happened to be amazing authors like George MacDonald and J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings that led him to encountering Jesus. He he often references this one book that he read by George MacDonald called Fantasies, which was essentially a fairy tale, basically just a story that made no explicit mention of God. But it records that as he read it, he said he sensed a bright shadow emerging from the book and making its way throughout his real world. And and he quoted this, my imagination was baptized. He also frequently recalls how with his, one of his really good friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, how he would sit with him and read his, his stories, especially the Lord of the Rings. And through those books, through those writings, he was able to encounter God. By the way, if you watch Lord of the Rings and you are not moved or convicted by the Holy Spirit or encounter God, you are not saved. Okay, just wanted to throw that out there. See, C.S. Lewis didn't lack information. He lacked meaning. He lacked encounter. He lacked experience. And it wasn't until God engaged him in his imagination through the writings of his friends where he finally gave his life to Jesus you know, this is why C.S. Lewis's the, the Chronicles of Narnia are so beloved in the church because it doesn't just tell us facts about God. It engages our imaginations in a way that leads us into an encounter with God. I remember at one of the lowest moments of my life, I just happened to be reading through the Chronicles of Narnia and the book I was on was my favorite book, the fifth book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I remember I was reading this book in this really rough season in my life, weighed down by failures and disappointments and sin. And in this book, there's a kid named Eustace who's just all sorts of nasty and mean. And because of his attitude, he finds himself turned into a dragon. Now, I wish we could just do that in our world. Actually, no, that would be really bad. Um, But Eustace, this kid, he's turned into a dragon because of his bad attitude. He's stuck, unable to return to being a normal boy. And he goes on this journey of going through various struggles and trials and hardships, including being attacked and injured. And then when he's at his lowest, he's injured. Aslan, the mighty lion, appears and leads him to this beautiful, lush garden. And, you know, for this next moment, I'm just going to read from the book. I want you to just imagine this picture with me. Close your eyes if you need to. But Aslan takes this dragon who's injured at his lowest point, leads him into this lush garden. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself. And my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, 
I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned to a boy again. Man, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I I see the beautiful image that C.S. Lewis is trying to invoke in our minds, in our imaginations. And in this low point in my life, as I was reading this, I imagined all of this going in my head, except it wasn't Eustace as the dragon, it was me. And I imagined God peeling off the layers of sin, the layers of failure, the layers of disappointment that I had tried to peel off on my own, but to no avail. And it hurt so good. And I imagined him making me new. And it led me to this powerful encounter with God that I still remember to this day. This is the power of our imagination. And when God uses it to speak to us. One of the greatest commandments, the greatest commandment in the Bible that Jesus gives, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I think a lot of us understand to a degree what it means to love God with all of our heart, all of our passion, all of our emotions, all of our soul, all of our willpower, but I think it's hard to conceptualize what it means to love God with all of our mind. What if loving God with all of our minds was more than just the intellectual accumulation of knowledge and facts about God? What if loving God with all of our minds was more than just thinking good thoughts and reciting scripture in our heads through meditation? What if if loving God with all of our minds included the realm of our imagination? How much of an experience with God are we missing out on because we've limited our understanding of what it means to love God with all of our minds? I think the sad reality is most of us write off our imaginations as something unspiritual. We wonder if what we're imagining is really from God or if it's just a projection of our own thoughts. We think of it more in terms of fantasy, almost an escape from reality and the truth. Just like that SpongeBob clip, imagination, that's what we imagine it to be. But we find that the imagination is not something that takes us away from the truth, but rather it has the ability to enhance and enable a powerful experience of that truth. 
Greg Wolf, who writes a lot on this topic, writes, there's been a tendency in the West to speak of faith and reason as the true great faculties of the human soul. The imagination has often played the role of Cinderella, taken for granted, or at least left implicit, not fully celebrated. In a more complete picture of the human soul, imagination shines forth in a Trinitarian Trinitarian relationship with faith and reason. And so it stands to reason that if we submit all of our heart, soul, and mind to the authority of Jesus, he's more than capable of speaking to us through our imagination and through our own thoughts and our minds. Remember, we don't think in lines of information. We think visually in images. Yet so many of us pray without images. So many of us pray without engaging our imagination. We pray as if we have that teleprompter running through lines of information and statements that we're going to say to God. And we wonder why our prayer lives are so dull. And we wonder why we see no transformation happening in our lives as we pray. Just think for a moment. Think about the big difference between meeting up with someone face-to-face and having a conversation versus texting with someone. It's night and day difference. Even right now, as we're doing prayer on Zoom, which is the best that we can do right now, as beautiful as it is, there's no substitution for being with someone in the physical presence and having a conversation with them, interacting with them, smelling them, hearing their voice, laughing together. There's nothing that replaces that. Yet so many of us limit our ability to experience the person of Jesus by not engaging him in our imagination. The prophet wrote and was requoted in Acts 2.17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I believe we are in those last days and God has poured out his spirit And I believe that every son and daughter of God is empowered and able to see visions through their imaginations of an invisible God. And so this is where we learn the beautiful practice of imaginative prayer. And from here on out, we're going to get really practical. You know, ever since the early church, pastors, theologians, Christians have practiced engaging God with their imaginations. One such such advocate was St. Ignatius of Loyola. And actually, Ignatius still to this day practice this, this beautiful practice of imaginative prayer. Some of you might have heard it as prophetic prayer or maybe other things in the charismatic circle. Um, But today we're going to call it imaginative prayer. And the purpose of imaginative prayer is this one goal. It's simply to encounter Jesus through our imaginations. That's the goal right here. Now, Richard Foster, who writes a lot on the spiritual disciplines, wrote this. He says, you can actually encounter the living Christ, be addressed by his voice, and be touched by his healing power. It can be more than an exercise of the imagination. It can be a genuine confrontation. Jesus Christ will actually come to you. 
It takes us from the, the realm of knowing things about Jesus to actually knowing him intimately, relationally, and experientially. Now, there are many ways to engage with God through our imagination. You know, one way is even as you're reading a text of scripture to pause and to reimagine and revisualize what that moment in scripture was like. That's one way to do it. There are many ways that we can engage with God through our imagination. But today I want to teach you one way that we're going to try to do that this week as a community. So y'all ready? Let's do this, okay? And so these, this is how we're going to approach imaginative prayer this week as a community. And I'm going to lead us uh, through it together again today. Uh, but right now, I'm just going to lay out step by step. And so we're not actually doing it yet. But I'm going to teach you one way that we can um, engage in imaginative prayer with God. And so we always begin by inviting Holy Spirit to lead us in this time of prayer. In other words, we rely on Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting. Kelly Dearborn, Carrie Dearborn wrote, An imagination that would be empowered must be humble and childlike enough to jump on the Spirit's wings, go where the Spirit would go, see what the Spirit sees, and feel what the Spirit feels. And so as we invite Holy Spirit to lead us, we are submitting our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to the leadership of Jesus and trust in his ability to speak. And I think this is where most of us get lost because we wonder, is what I'm seeing really from God, is this really a heavenly vision? But we need to trust that if we invite Holy Spirit to lead us, we can trust that if we submit our mind to Jesus, he'll use it and speak to us through it. Last week, we read about that passage that if a child asks his father for a loaf of bread or fish, his father won't give him a stone or a serpent. He'll give him a bread and a fish. So if we ask God, God, speak to me through my imagination, through my mind, we have to trust in Holy Spirit speaking and leading us in this time. And so we invite Holy Spirit. And at this point, we'll probably close our eyes And what we're going to do, we're going to begin by imagining that you're in a special place. And we're going to call this place our Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was a place where the presence of God dwelled. It was the thickness of God's presence right there. You couldn't get any closer to God than there. And so this is our Holy of Holies. It's a special place. And what you're going to do is you're going to imagine the most beautiful intimate place that you can think of. It's your secret place, a special place just for you and God. You ever have a special place with a friend? You know, for me and Krista, I really feel like our special place is this garden on the Amalfi Coast in Italy that we went to on our honeymoon. Actually, Krista told me that if she's ever dying, um, that I have to fly her there, and she wants to die in that garden. And it's this beautiful garden overlooking the Amalfi Coast, and it's this beautiful place, and I really feel like it's our place. It's that special place meant for us. And so in your mind, you're imagining this special, beautiful place that's meant just for you and God. For some of you, it might be a garden. For some of you, it might be a beach. For some of you, it might be a room. But I want you to notice the details around you. What's around you? What's in your vicinity that you can see? If you want to take it further, like what are you smelling? Maybe it's the smell of ripe oranges growing on the trees, or maybe it's the smell of the ocean. What do you feel? Maybe 
maybe you feel the warm sun shining on your skin or the gentle breeze that's brushing against your cheeks. What do you hear? Maybe it's birds chirping or waves crashing, whatever it is. I want you to imagine that beautiful setting. You're holy of holies. Next, we're going to imagine Jesus walking toward us. I want to throw a disclaimer out there because some of you already have a problem with this. None of us actually know what Jesus physically looks like. All I know is he's not white like all the early Christians portrayed him as, but none of us actually know with certain detail what Jesus looks like. And so as we do this exercise, we shouldn't worry so much about the accuracy of our physical representation of Jesus. But what's more important is the accuracy of his character that matches up with scripture. Now, Greg Boyd, he he writes, the color of Jesus's eyes doesn't matter, but the love, care, and compassion shown through them does. The length of Jesus's beard, or for that matter, matter where, whether the Whether he has a beard is of no consequence, but the tenderness of his smile and the loving words that come forth from his lips are of infinite consequence. The height and build of Jesus' body matters nothing, but the love expressed in the hug and the compassion of his caressing hand matters everything. And so we're going to imagine Jesus walking toward us and don't get so caught up on trying to get an accurate physical representation. We're, we're more after an accurate character representation of him. But just imagine him walking toward you. Notice his body language. Notice what he's wearing. Notice his facial features. Notice his eyes, his hair, what he's wearing. I mean, Ying's Jesus will probably be really, really buff. I don't know. You might imagine Jesus a totally different way than I do, but that's not the point. What's more important is his character and his nature being expressed through his physical experience. So notice these physical attributes of Jesus, but also notice what are, what are his eyes communicating as he looks at you? What is his posture as he's drawing closer to you? Now next, we're going to imagine that Jesus has walked up to us and he's right before us in the Holy of Holies in our secret place. I want you to imagine you extending out your hand and he has something in his hand that he wants to give you for today. And so you you put out your hand and he drops whatever it is he has in his hand for you. Now picture yourself reaching out your hand to receive what he has to give you. Now for some of you, it might be a word that drops into your hand or a sentence or phrase, maybe even a scripture. For some of you, it might be an object. There have been many times I've done this exercise. One time I saw God drop a giant orange into my hand. Another time it was a DVD of a movie. Or maybe he's dropping a sign or symbol or maybe even a color or a number. Maybe it's something super abstract. You have no idea why he's giving this to you. But take notice of what God gives you as you look at it in your hand. And I want you to ask God why he's giving you this object. Pay attention to the tone of his voice, the words that he's speaking. And listen, if you're having trouble imagining anything that he's giving you, then one default that we can do is simply go to scripture and imagine him speaking some of scripture's promises to you. Maybe he's telling you, I will never forsake you nor leave you. Maybe he's telling you, I will be your mighty fortress and your defender. 
But whatever we receive from God, we need to make sure that it lines up with the character and nature of God from Scripture. It doesn't mean everything that he says needs to be word for word found in Scripture. Everything he gives us needs to be found in Scripture. I guarantee you will not see Jesus handing anyone a DVD or an orange in Scripture. It doesn't mean that it has to match up word for word object by object found in scripture, but it needs to line up with the character, the attitude, and the nature of who Jesus is in scripture. And so as you receive this, and as you ask God for clarity about why he's giving this to you today and what it could mean for you, meditate on what he's given you for today, and you end your time after you've had this interaction with God by thanking God and giving him a big hug. You could visualize what it feels like to be in his arms. You could visualize what he smells like, what kind of laundry detergent he uses, I don't know, probably Dove, what he feels like. And then you end, amen. Man, doesn't that sound beautiful? Doesn't that sound amazing? I know for some of you, you might already have hesitation that, okay, how do I know that this is not just in my mind and it's not God? Um, Other than trusting in the Holy Spirit, I would also propose that at worst, Okay, maybe you're imagining all of this in your mind, but as long as it aligns to the character of God in Scripture, at worst, you've just strengthened your understanding of who he is, even if it's your own thoughts. But at best, we've encountered the living God in a new, exciting, meaningful, and transformative way. Now, I just want to end with a few stories to help illustrate the power of this. In Indonesia, we would do this every morning where we'd go meet with God in our secret place, and we'd ask him to give us something for that day. And I remember that day, God gave me the most abstract thing that you could possibly ask for. He gave me a bright yellow circle and under it a red triangle pointing up at it. And so I'm like, God, what does this mean? And I I didn't hear anything. He just says, just receive it. And so I have this yellow circle and this red triangle that I have no idea that God wants me to hold on to for the day. I thought I was going crazy. I was like, throughout the day, I'm looking for yellow circles and red triangles. You know, I see on signs, a yellow circle, but no red triangle. You know, I see, um, I don't know, I see various objects that look like it, but nothing that's connecting. And so I started thinking, okay, I probably just heard wrong, or I didn't hear from God today, or I might have seen something that maybe I wasn't supposed to know what it was. And so I just went throughout my day. That night, we had a prayer meeting with a local church, and I remember as we were praying with the church members, all of a sudden, the word God gave me for this woman, uh, he took me to the passage in Exodus as Moses was atop the mountain, comes down after having an encounter with God, his face was radiating and shining so much that the people asked him to veil it because it was so bright, and I, I just got this word for this lady that God wants to unveil the glory as she spends time with God. God's going to bless the people around her. They're going to see the radiance of God's presence shining off of her life. And I remember I began praying for her, and I was about to pray when I noticed on her shirt a red triangle pointing upward, and all of a sudden it clicked. Her face was the yellow circle radiating with God's glory. The red triangle was on her shirt, and automatically that thing that God gave me for today, I was able to tell her, you know what? I prayed this morning. These are the two symbols that I saw, and this is what it means right here, right now. God wants you to know that as you spend time with him, your face will radiate and glow with the glory of God, and people around you will see God through your face, through your life. 
And she was rocked. She was so blessed. It was exactly what she needed to hear in that moment. And so as we do this exercise and practice imaginative prayer, we engage God with a new set of perspective, a new and exciting way that we can interact with him. It could be God giving us something for ourselves for the day or for someone else. But I really want us this week, church, even if it's just one time, I want you to practice imaginative prayer. Now, one time is beginner level, but if you're going to do some extra credit bonus work every morning, I want you to start off with imaginative prayer and then ask God to give you something for that day. And so, church, I encourage and challenge all of you to practice this, this form of prayer. I mean, what do you have to lose? There's nothing to lose. At the worst, it's all in your head and you strengthen your understanding of who God is. At best, you encounter the living God. And so this week, let's have faith that as children of God, that we can hear the voice of God, that we can meet him in this beautiful, imaginative way in the realm of our minds. And so church, I want to pray for us and then we're going to head into a time of prayer where we actually practice this for our community. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that life of faith is not dull. It's not boring. And God, I thank you that our walk and our relationship with you is more than just lines of data, strings of information, archives of knowledge. It's so much more. But there is this experiential reality that you long to engage with us in, found in the realm of our minds and our imaginations. God, I see this image of this dusty shelf and we've put our imaginations on the shelf, this way that you long to engage and to communicate with us. We've left it on the shelf and it's been gathering dust for far too long. And I just see this image of us blowing the dust off of our imaginations and re-engaging with it and meeting you there. God, I thank you. If you're Lord of our emotions, if you're Lord over our bodies, if you're Lord over our circumstances, then certainly you are Lord over our minds. And if our imaginations are part of our minds, then you are Lord over it and we submit it to you. And so would you engage us this week in our imagination? Would we hear your voice and have the confidence and the trust to know that you are speaking to us? We love you. We honor you. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray, we say, Amen.